something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So today we have David Brooks on the podcast. Brooks is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and appears regularly on PBS NewsHour, NPR's All Things Considered, and NBC's Meet the Press. He teaches at Yale University and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is the best-selling author of a number of books, including The Social Animal, The Hidden Sources of Love, Character and Achievement, The New Upper Class and How They Got There, The Road to Character, and most recently, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. David, great to chat with you today. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's a really interesting book, and it's interesting to kind of watch the evolution of David Brooks by reading David Brooks's books in succession. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everyone I, I you tried, have. I, I tried to get, I, I realized, look, you only realize these things looking backwards, but yeah. I've written about the same territory, but sort of one level down each time. So my first book was Bobos in Paradise about consumption, really, and then was about settlement patterns, my second book, then about emotion, and then about character, and now sort of more spiritual stuff. So I don't know what, what's the next level down, um, maybe sports or something. <laughs> the yeah. elemental level of human existence. <laughs> yeah, you might need like a break from such high level uh, spiritual stuff. Your next book might be like before the mountain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, like... The road to hedonism. Well, so I was going to ask you how this book differs from the road to character. I mean, I know it differs, but I wanted you to maybe explain to the audience a little bit. There are two ways it differs. Uh, one, it's much more personal. Uh, this is a book about the things that happened to me in the last six years of my life, which uh, were transformative in how I look at the world. And so th- it's that, and it's much more about relationships. And second, The Road to Character was really built and imprisoned by the culture of individualism, which is, I think, the culture of our time and, mm-hmm. and the culture I was living in. And so the theory of character building in uh, The Road to Character is that it's all about internal drama. You identify your own weaknesses, and then you slowly learn to master those weaknesses. So it's like going to the gym, and you build muscles to be more honest, to be more courageous. And Dwight Eisenhower, who was in that book, it's about he he had a terrible temper. So every day he did inner work to build his temper. Mm. And so the theory was very individualistic. And I've since come to believe that character is not really built that way because none of us have enough motivation to do it. And then the desire to be good is, or the knowledge of what is good is plentiful, but the desire to actually do it is scarce. And mm-hmm. you've got to focus on the desire. And so the theory now is that you fall in love with things, say a, a child, a cause, um, mm-hmm. or a profession, uh, and you make promises to the things you love. 
And then your character is forged as you sort of live up to your promises. So character is formed by our commitment to others, not so much by our drama within ourselves. Yeah. So the subtext there is that choose your commitments very wisely because couldn't you commit to certain things that are going to build, that are going to like not build good character? Like I can be committed to eating uh, cheesesteaks every night. (laughs) Right. I mean, 15 or 1600 years ago, St. Augustine says, be careful what you love because you become what you love. Yeah. And more recently, David Foster Wallace in that famous Kenyan commencement said, if you love money, you'll always feel poor. If you love power, you'll always feel powerless. He said, there are no atheists in life. We're all worshiping something. So Mm -hmm. be careful what you worship. And I do think uh, that is true. And the theory of this book, and it really comes out of the teaching I was doing, which is that most of us make four big commitments in life to a spouse and family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and to a community. And the fulfillment of our lives depends on how well we we make and then execute on those kinds of commitments. Right. And we'll, we'll go through those later in the podcast. But before we get to those specific commitments, you talk about some crises that uh, we're going through. You actually say they're interrelated. And when talking about these crises, you know, can you talk about how things have changed in our society since you wrote your last book, or even since you wrote your first book? There's been some dramatic shifts. Like you wouldn't necessarily have identified these four interrelated crises when you wrote your first book. Is that right? Right. Well, we've gotten to know a lot of America a lot better. Um, yeah. And um, America is in some ways economically richer, but socially worse. And so over the last, since 1999, the suicide rate has gone up by 30%. The teenage suicide rate by some measures has gone up by as much as 70%. Depression rates are up. Um, mental health problems are up. Every campus I go to, um, the mental health facilities are swamped. And so there's been some crisis of disconnection. I think that was not evidence in the 1990 decline in social capital. And of course, that's a gradual process. But general narrative, I would tell, was in the 50s and 40s, because we had to fight the war and combat the depression, we had a very communal culture. Uh, We're all in this together. And around about 1962, we decided that was too stifling. Uh, We worried about conformity, and it was too racist and too sexist. So we got rid of that that communal culture, and we developed a culture that says, I'm free to be myself. This is sort of the Carl Rogers world. I want to self-actualize. I want to unleash my inner spirit. And that was good and necessary for a time, but I think we've taken it to the extreme. And as a result, we've gone disconnected from each other, and the effects are visible in our depression rates. are also very visible in our politics, in the levels of distrust, alienation, and hostility. So can you talk about these four crises that you identify? One you touched on with the suicide it seems to be linked to loneliness, but can you mention the, other, the others? Yeah, well, for example, others are uh, levels of distrust. Um, If you ask people a generation ago, do you trust the institutions of your society? 70 or 80 percent said, yes, I do. And now it's down to 22 percent. If you asked a generation ago, do you trust your neighbors? Um, A majority, 50 or 60 percent said, yeah, the people around me are basically trustworthy. Now that's 33 percent and 19 percent of millennials. And it's interesting, the younger you go, trust in institutions declined basically 70s, 80s, and then around 2008, you know, financial crisis, Iraq war in two spurts. But crisis, the distrust of each other, that's purely generational. So if you're a boomer, you have pretty high trust in people around you. If you're a millennial, much lower, and Gen Z, much lower still. The younger you go, the more distrusting you are. And so you get that crisis. And then to me, one I see in my day job, political, is the crisis of tribalism. And Mm. i heard that psychologists have this phrase, the hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure. And uh, we, when, you're, when you're left naked and alone, you do what your evolutionary roots tell you to do, which is you uh, revert to tribe. And tribe seems like community. It seems like a way to attach to people, but it's really the opposite of community. Community is based on a mutual affection for a cause or a place or something. But tribalism is based on a mutual hatred of another. You both hate the same things. And so it's always friend, enemy, us, them. Uh, zero-sum scarcity mentality, erect walls, build barriers, and tribalism is basically the world I live in when I cover politics. Oh, yeah, you certainly do live. You're deep in the swamp. You know, I, I was just so fascinated with this article you wrote a couple months ago, I believe, on, you know, you're like, I'm open to reparations. Yeah, I'm like, wait, David, David Brooks just said that? <laughs> you know, like this kind of hardened conservative stance, I mean, is that's not you, you know, it seems like you're really trying to listen to as many perspectives as possible. At least that's my perception. Would you, would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I hope so. You know, I've always been more of a Burkean Alex. Yeah. Edmund Burke, Alexander Hamilton conservative. Yeah. And that's not the kind that would put me in the moderate conservative camp these days. But or maybe 20 years ago, I would have been in the moderate conservative camp. Now it's like the Republican Party is unrecognizable to me. So I'm just politically homeless. And then that reparations column, I've just been traveling around the country for really two or three years trying to find people who I call weavers who are building community on local level. People are just really sensational at relationship. And in the course of that, you just spend a lot of time just on the racial divide in this country. And it really begins to feel like a make or break moment where we either show a gesture of historic recognition and respect or we don't. And so I have still qualms about the practical aspects of doing reparations, like how exactly would you do it? But I think it's necessary to think in unexpected ways, given where we are. To think in unexpected ways and, and maybe listen to as wide perspectives as possible on the issue. Yeah. So kudos to you. I gave you kudos when you wrote that <laughs> for being open. Now, I haven't made my own mind up on these complex issues, but I think the important thing these days is to at least have these discussions in a complex, respectful manner. Yeah. Are you a member of the Heterodox Academy, by the way? Uh, no, I'm going to speak at their conference in a, oh, okay. in a few weeks, uh, but I am consider myself as an admirer. <laughs> okay. Potentially a member. So, okay, this is something I try to reconcile in reading your book. So, well, there are a couple things, and so I thought we could dive into some nuances here. So you describe your life as a, quote, border stalker, <laughs> and I thought that was neat. I identify as a border stalker, too, in the sense, let's be clear what a border stalker is. It sounds a little shady, <laughs> to be honest. But let's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for our audience, yeah. it has nothing to do with being a stalker, you know. In, in, <laughs> but um, could you please describe a little bit that it is, because I resonated with that description. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I'm like a guy who peers in windows. Yeah. Now, it's, yeah. Um, it, the, well, when the, I, once the I said it out was, loud, I was like, wait a minute. Let's <laughs> be clear to the audience what we're talking about. Now. Yeah. The phrase I got from a friend of mine named Mako Fujimori, who's a um, a painter, but he he um, is Japanese, but he's also American. So he grew up a bit in J- Japan, but a lot in America. But he goes back to Japan and he does a he uses um, Japanese artistic techniques uh, to create incredibly beautiful paintings. And so he sort of lives between the Japanese culture and the American culture. And I weirdly, when I was writing the book, found realized how much I'm never quite in one camp. I'm sort of a journalist, but I'm a little more, I'm pretty academic-y for a journalist. I'm sort of a conservative, but I'm pretty left-wing for a conservative. I'm sort of a Jew, but I have polls to Christian thought. Um, And so a a phrase, another phrase that appeals to me is from a a guy named Richard Rohr. And he says, you want to be on the edge of inside. And so in any group, there are people who are right at the core of the group and they serve a useful function. But there are also people who are inside the group, but sort of on the outer edge of it. And he says that's where creativity happens because you can see more clearly outside the group. You have more exchange across borders, and it's just a creative place to be on the edge of inside. So I love that, and I agree. As as a creativity researcher, I would say the empirical evidence confirms that or suggests that's true. So what I'm trying to reconcile is how can you live a fiercely committed life and be a border stalker at the same time? Uh, That is a very good question, which nobody has ever asked me before. You know, I think partly it's you don't decide to become a border stalker. You just um, find yourself in this spot. I didn't decide to become sort of on the edge of conservatism. Hmm. It's just where the social group happened to fit around me. And so I I do think I'm, for example, you know, I decided I want to become a writer at seven, at age seven. And it's been 50 years since. And I've written pretty much every day, maybe 250 days in all those years. Yeah. So I'm I think I've proven I'm reasonably committed to being a writer. Yeah, I'd but say. it was never quite clear what kind of writer I would be, whether journalist, fiction, plays, whatever. I had different ambitions at times, and I just happened to find myself really admiring the nonfiction of the 1950s. And there was people like Jane Jacobs and Digby Baltzell and other people like that. William White. They wrote sort of high. It would be a little high journalism, but it wouldn't be quite rigorous enough to be academic. And I just like that style and I really write in their style in 2019. So that makes me a little bit of a a border stalker, but doesn't mean that I'm less committed to writing than I've always been. Yeah. And I can see how that applies to like the general domain of writing, but the, you, you talk about the second mountain life is a committed life of either a vocation, spouse and family, philosophy, or community. By the way, are these ors or are these ends? 
Is the second uh, man like either or. Okay. either or? Yeah, like a lot of people. What I'm really trying to use commitment is a way to really combat individualism. And so in marriage, for example, there's a guy, a great uh, sociologist, Eli Finkel at Northwestern, oh, yeah. who says that the model of marriage that's prevalent today is sort of the expressive marriage where two partners are sort of helping each other on their life plan, but it's not, they're not really totally, they're not one, a one flesh union, as the old religions would say. It's sort of two individual projects that are done side by side with intertwines. And I think that's not a very great model for marriage. And this is obviously an area where I've had, I've had my own problems been through a divorce, but I do think a marriage survives when you each partner throws themselves wholeheartedly into it and sort of loses ego, loses individualism, and sacrifices for the institution. Huh. And so to me, commitment is living for the institution rather than living for self. So I disagree with that, and I thought we could talk about that. Okay. So I actually wrote a response to your column, the Eli Finkel column. I wrote a response to that for Scientific American called There's No One Way to Live a Good Life. And mm -hmm. I kind of argued that was like a false dichotomy because you say a sentence like there's always a tension between self and society, and I thought that was a false dichotomy as well. It seems to me, and you can tell me what you think, but it seems in all the research I've seen that a good integration of having a healthy self-respect, having a healthy self-actualization. So basically, the way I view it is that transcendence, a healthy transcendence, you can have healthy transcendence and you can have very like unhealthy transcendence. You can have like masochism. You can have like, like the idea of surrendering yourself and leaving yourself behind is like sets you up for like a lot of psychological disorders, you know, in my opinion. It seems like the best way is to have a kind of relationship where you stand on a, you know, where transcendence stands on a healthy bedrock of self-actualization. Like, you know yourself, you know what you're bringing to the table, and you are helping each other learn and grow each in their own direction. So I guess I didn't see it as either, you know, because you opened up your article, either you have this model, the good life, or you have this model. I didn't see it as an either-or situation, so I'm excited to be able to talk to you about that today. Yeah. I guess I'd say uh, two things. One is, you know, obviously a lot of these things are tensions, and they're tensions between competing goods. And I would say in our culture, the, the main problem we have to worry about these days is narcissism and self-obsession yes. and the, the detached self. And so if we were living in a society, probably, you know, medieval, you know, Britain, where no one was detached, then I'd probably be leaning the other way. So a lot of what I'm writing is in the context of the times we're in. And the second thing I think I'd say, and I have this conversation with friends of mine, we, we differ. There's the phrase, you have to love yourself before you can love others. Yes. And I think I, I disagree with that phrase. And I think you love first because someone loved you and gave you a model for how to love probably your parents. And then the second, you find yourself being worthy of love when you see yourself loving others. And so I think my worldview puts the relationship first. It's not that individuals form relationships, it's that relationships exist and relationships form the individuals. I think that's how I put it. Cool. Well, thanks for offering that perspective. I guess I don't view it as a chicken or egg sort of thing. Like either, again, I also view that as a false dichotomy that like either, you know, you need to love yourself first, you love others first. So I really take kind of like the Eric Fromm. I'm a big fan of the humanistic approach. I'm a bit so like when you kind of talked about Carl Rogers and and Maslow in, in kind of a negative light, I was like, oh, game on, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> just uh, let me explain my position, and then I'd love to hear what you think. So because the way I view it is like a very like the Art of Loving by Eric Fromm is one of my favorite books, and that's right. my philosophy that I'm committed to, you know, in in the language in your language of your book, and in that philosophy doesn't view it as a chicken or egg sort of thing. It's a simultaneous thing. So love is love is love. So if you shine, if you have a readiness to love, you can have a readiness to hate. And there's a lot of people with a readiness to hate in this world today. Those people with a general readiness to hate tend to hate themselves as well as others. Those who tend to just have a general readiness to love, they just shine the beam of love. They radiate love regardless of the stimulus. Maybe it's internal stimulus and they show themselves self-compassion and acceptance or it's others and they show others acceptance and like our data set on the i've been doing some research on the the light triad to kind of balance out the dark triad in the psychological literature we see that the light triad is strong very very strong correlations between a worldview of I offer others dignity and respect, and I, you know, don't use people as a means to an end, and I love myself. Not in a narcissistic way. Self-love. See, I would argue that narcissistic love is not self-love. Like, that's not love. That's something else. 
So yeah, I just wanted to offer that perspective on the table yeah. and see what um, you think. It's interesting. Well, that I mean, the part about the sort of the triads that does resonate with me. But oh, do you cool. find? I mean, a couple things. More questions, really. Do you find people are consistent across contexts in how they manifest either yeah. a loving demeanor or a hateful demeanor? Probably my as just my instinct and the research is probably they are just the idea that people who hate hate themselves doesn't always ring true to me. And of course, hate is sometimes a very useful emotion to have. It's a, it's a lie sure. to justice. So I just throw those out as questions for you. No. And, and those are great questions. Cause like, you know, there is no absolute here. Like I think of the healthy integration of like anything can be valuable. So if you have aggression, let's not use the word hate. That's such a strong word, but like, yeah, like hostility, it's perfectly, a lot of people that score high on the white triad may rightly so have hostility towards people who are damn it, doing like great injustices in this world, you know, or causing great injustices. It's okay to show that emotion, but you know, there's a healthy integration of that emotion. What we're, what I think we're seeing so much in society today is this disintegration of like, you know, people have runaway aggression as Carl Rogers put it, you know, they don't have the sort of like uh, principled sort of aggression that's towards a common humanity sort of uh, view. And, and we found people who score in the late triad have very transcendent values. So even whilst, why, I don't know why I just said whilst, I'm not British, but even while, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I did that, but even while they may have rightly so, you know, feel anger and for so many injustices in the world, they still are always looking for that. They still have a fundamental faith in humanity. That was the third part of that. So I should tell you what the three things of the late triad were. One, and I can give you the test to take if you want. I have it online yeah. if you want to take it and see your own way, triad score. But one is Kantianism, which is the opposite of Machiavellianism, which was in the dark triad. So I, you know, Kant's uh, categorical imperative I don't treat people as a means to an end, I treat people as an end in themselves. Another is humanism. You know, I treat individual I meet with dignity and worth and respect. And then faith in humanity is the third one. And we use like Helen Keller as an example. I mean, even as the Nazis were coming up to kill her. She wrote in her diary, I still believe in despite this all that humans are fundamentally good. And so, yeah, I mean, I, these three things, they still have this overall worldview, despite this contextual sort of discontent with things. Yeah, I guess, um, well, the first thing that occurs to me is that Rogers and Frum were writing at that moment when we were rebelling against the, the conformity of mid-century, 20th century America. Mm. And so sometimes when I read them, I think they were they were part of that rebellion, which was probably a necessary one. Mm. But second, I think from the self-esteem movement and the rising narcissism scores and rising faith in just that the oracle of all life will be inside oneself, I do think has left people uh, morally inarticulate because they're always waiting for the golden oracle inside themselves to answer all their spiritual questions. And I would side more on the Viktor Frankl side, that asking the question, what's my passion or what do I want from life is generally the wrong way to approach life. And the better is to seek sources of wisdom outside oneself. Uh, yeah. What is life asking of me? And it is, well, I guess I would side more on the people who think the Rogers methodology has <laughs> led more to, you know, what Christopher Lash called the culture of narcissism and all that. Again, not necessarily because of what he said, but things get taken too far in the culture. That's just the way things go. Yeah. And I hear you. And I love that aspect of your book. And, you know, this is the thing that's kind of interesting for me, like sitting back, because I am so on board with this call. And, you know, I've been doing some research on, you know, with colleague David Yadin at, at Penn on self-transcendence. And it's such a valuable, you know, there's, you're saying so many good things. I guess where I start to lose is when you start to pit it, you say aside, like, I thought you were a Buddha stalker, <laughs> you know, like, don't be hypocritical now. If you actually look at the writings of Carl Rogers, we need to make a distinction between self-esteem and narcissism. And I guess you don't make that distinction, which like there's a very clear in the psychological yeah. literature. They have very different correlates. Actually, self-esteem is a great thing. Like if we just view it as, as having self-worth and a healthy sense of competence, that's it. That's all self-esteem means. Narcissism is really what you're talking about. And I think conflating that with self-esteem is actually detrimental because, you know, if anything, I think you say what's wrong with the world today, what's the crisis? It's funny. I would say one of the big crises is that people are losing their connection with themselves. <laughs> and, you know, it's a different way of framing it. Like, that's what real Carl Rogers, you know, and, and Maslow and the humanistic psychologist, um, I'm a big fan of Raul May as well. I don't know if you've read any of his writings. Right. Like the way he would have framed it is real healthy, like surrendering yourself and giving to others 
just has to rest on a sense of basic self-worth and competency for your own skills, or else that actually does lead to hostility and a lot of the aggression we see in the world today. You see a lot of people surrendering themselves in violent extremists, in cults, and in the extreme far left and far right movements. You know, you have I think that's actually the problem is there's too much, as Maslow would put it, I guess, transcendence built on a shaky foundation. Right. Again, I would make the distinction of whether it's born out of love or born out of hate. But exactly. let me ask you one no, final good. question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they really would have seen themselves in tension, May or um, Rogers, I think in tension with a contemporary, there's Reinhold Niebuhr. And it's really an assumption about what's what's essential to human nature. Hmm. What kind of creatures are we? And and Niebuhr's argument was that we're splendidly endowed and deeply broken. And he uh, thought one of the problems with American foreign policy and American life in general was that what he called the easy conscience of modern man, the the unwillingness to face the essential sinful nature, which is not all sin. He was not like one of these Calvinists. So there's a lot of love there. But he's he said the unwillingness to face sin and to build structures around sin hmm. was a key problem with American life. And he, I take him to be gesturing towards some of the May Rogers, et cetera. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, so Raul May had this central concept, the daimonic, which I loved. It's interesting. You talk about that a little bit in, in your own book, but not yeah. in, in the Raul May sense. You probably did, but you didn't mention Raul May. And I, was, I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll give my brother <laughs> Raul some credit <laughs> because I'm a, such a big fan of that concept in the way that he articulated it as, you know, mm-hmm. Humans have all these potentialities. It does not make sense to ask the question, like, what is deep down, what are we? The deep down thing doesn't really make sense considering it's all there, you know, over the course of human evolution. We can use our daimonic for the highest heights of creative expression or the greatest destructive aspects. So that's, I guess, where a free will, to what extent we have free will, comes into play, consciousness. You know, we kind of try to direct it in one way or another. But the demonic is not the demon. And he was very clear about that. He said, none of these things by themselves, even aggression, hostility, like we put these things as categories. This is also a criticism I have of the field of positive ecology. But I think that I don't like to absolutely classify certain psychological traits and things as like, these are the positive ones and these are the negative ones. To me, it's all about the healthy integration as opposed to like, I pick the team of transcendence or I pick the team of this. It's like, I pick team wholeness. And you do use the frame, I think you use the phrase whole person in there, and that was the central concept of the humanistic psychologist, was becoming a whole person. So I was excited when I believe you did use that phrase. Right. No, I, I do agree with that. I just hear that phrase everywhere now. Um, <laughs> no, but what you said rings, frankly, with Jewish thought, which mm. says there, you know, the, the, quote, evil impulses often drive us to do good, like we might be greedy, but that causes us to buildings and great companies and you know, great foundations and we may be lustful, but that causes us to have children. And so Jewish thought is much more, it's all mixed in. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know, there's also so much Christian thought in this book. I mean, like, I want to actually quote, can I quote scripture on the psychology podcast? (laughs) (laughs) You'll be thrown out of the profession, but you can try. (laughs) Okay. Give me a moment while I find it, because just one second, I'm actually working on a paper. Just while you're, while you're looking for it. Yeah. um, One of the things that I find if you're reading about how to do relationships right or what's the purpose of life, religious thinking, for most of Western history, that was religious thinking. So there's just a lot of wisdom in theology, whether you believe in God or not. And sometimes I go to it simply as a wisdom literature, and I find it very valuable religions I don't actually believe in. There's just so much stored wisdom over the centuries. There's so much stored wisdom that you can pick from various religions, even without the commitment. So again, I keep going back, like, how do we reconcile the commitment idea with like the export of, I guess my way is not picking a team, but saying that's the integration of of the two. But hey, I'm going to read a conclusion of a paper by Roddy Bassett and Jennifer Albee. I think it'll really really resonate with you. It was published in the Journal of Psychology and Theology considering adaptive and maladaptive versions of what's called unmitigated communion. Now, this is very relevant to your work because the concept of unmitigated communion is the idea of self-sacrifice, but losing yourself like with, with self-neglect. Right. And right. some researchers have showed just how damaging that can be. But they, I love this paper, and many people don't know about this paper because it was published in such an obscure like theology journal. But when I discovered, I was like, I contact the authors, like, I need to do a study using your scale and expand this because this is brilliant. So I'm just going to read the conclusion of their paper. I think it's going to resonate with you and help like further this conversation we're having. So 
Previous research identified a number of negative effects on personal and relational well-being when individuals expressed a tendency to focus on the needs of others at the expense of their own needs, a style labeled UC, or unmitigated communion. However, other work found that a willingness to forego immediate personal gain in order to promote the well-being of a partner or relationship had positive relational effects, and Christian teachings generally affirm the value of sacrificial love. How can this discrepancy be resolved? Scripture suggests an answer, quote, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So that's from Corinthians 13.3. Furthermore, the definition of love includes, quote, it is not self-seeking, Corinthians 13.5. So scripture teaches that our sacrificial behavior has value if it is driven by correct motivation. Our attempt to distinguish between self-sacrifice that is motivated by concern for others versus self-sacrifice that is motivated by concern for self fits with this distinction. Further research could examine the personal, relational, and spiritual outcomes associated with with the unmitigated communion self versus unmitigated communion other. So that the important thing here is that motivation matters. And I guess some nuance I'd like to add to your book and take it or leave it because I really like your message and I, is that I think that it's important not, you know, there are a lot of children that grow up where they're constantly told, sacrifice yourself, sacrifice yourself, and they grow up and end up on the psychotherapist couch, especially women. You know, there's a gender difference here where a lot of women just starts to lose their sense of self or lose their sense of like, you know, who am I really? And because I'm constantly been pressured to give to others, even to the sense that my own needs, I feel like are not valuable or worthy of expression. So I think that you're kind of like going against this important like pendulum swing that you're seeing in one direction. But I guess all I would say is let's make sure we don't like move the pendulum too far in the other direction either, where we start to make people feel guilty for having what I call like healthy selfishness, which is just, you know, like taking care of yourself and actualizing, you know, it's okay to have talents and things and interests and motivations that differ from others. So anyway, I just threw all this out there. I think they're very valid. I, in the course of writing this book, I wondered, is this a man's book? Because mm. uh, we certainly have known examples of women who've sort of so totally given themselves over to family and other things, which is sacrificial, but have never and then they feel, well, what about me? Where's yeah. my time? And we all feel like that. Like I'm involved in a lot of different projects in my life. And in moments of self-pity, you always say, well, when do I get to do what I want to do? <laughs> and we all have that. And that's legitimate. One question, one point. The the paper says something about self-sacrificial activity for the basis of self. I'm not quite sure I understand yeah, that. Yeah, let me uh, then, unpack that. I would like to unpack that. So it turns out that there are a lot of people. So there's a thing called vulnerable narcissism, which has been distinguished from like grandiose narcissism. So grandiose narcissism is what we see, you know, which is the stereotypical, like the boastful grandiose form. But there's a more vulnerable form where you feel shame, intense shame and self-uncertainty about yourself. You feel like you're kind of rotten in the core, but you also kind of feel like, well, but I do have these grandiose visions, but I'm ashamed of having these grandiose visions. It's a kind of an introverted form of narcissism. Interestingly enough, you find that one of the major facets of vulnerable, not grandiose narcissism, but vulnerable narcissism is what's called self-enhancing self-sacrifice. That seems to be actually an indicator of vulnerable narcissism in the clinical literature. And that is like the kind of items on that are like, I help others in order for me to feel good about myself. I help others in order to show what I'm a great person I am. And that's right. what they mean by the, the self-motivations for unmitigated communion seem to be gotcha. unhealthy. Yeah. But the important thing is to enjoy it, to have the genuine sort of like the kind of items on the other scale, are like I help others because I want my own personal growth, or I genuinely like to see people flourish, or like I get some sort of not a compulsive aspect of it, but I really like I get great sort of enjoyment out of just helping people. And that seems to be healthy. So they distinguish between these two motivations. And I think that what's really interesting is that a lot of the developmental precursors, there's also genetic factors, but developmental precursors of vulnerable narcissism are, we found in our own studies, the item, as a child, I was told to constantly substitute my own needs for others. That was like one of the biggest markers of the development of vulnerable narcissism. Now, I don't think you want to develop vulnerable narcissism in in people, right? Right, right. Yeah, and then that rings true. I know people who I would put in that category, and it is a yeah. It's funny, and as a, first as we're speaking, my first reaction is, "Wow, there's a lot of literature out there. I got to learn." <laughs> so you have access to a lot of the journals that I'm not reading. I can load um, you I up. I, I can I, load you up. <laughs> <laughs> Second, I, I am I am struck a little by it depends on what we're pushing against, um, and yeah. I, I guess I do. You know, my last book 
wrote a character. I had a lot of the research on narcissism and the rise of narcissism and just the rise of of ego. And I do think there's a fair bit of data, which I tend to be pushing against. So maybe I'm just pushing against my own ego. No, <laughs> um, no, no. I want to be clear that I'm so on board with you about a transcending ego. Do you see this as a valuable distinction? Because I guess I do. Like, there's one thing which is like transcending the ego, but the other thing is like, I don't think we should need to transcend ourselves. So like self right. is not ego. I actually, right. so the ego to me is that part of the self that is the defensive, that holds the fortress up. Like I have to constantly be seen and myself has to be seen in a positive light at all times. But the self is just simply, you know, what, knowing yourself, knowing what's my personality, what is my, what are, am I an introvert, you know, do, am I dispositionally an introvert? Okay, am I, to really have great self-insight about, you know, what are my strength, what realistic understanding of my abilities, you know, like understanding myself. To me, I would say that what you're arguing really against is the ego. And I'm so on board with you, David Brooks. Like, don't get me wrong. Don't get it twisted, as they say. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, I think that puts what I should have said. I think that's that's right. We've had so much. I've spent so much of my time over the last 15 years reading like Danny Kahneman and people like that. Mm. So much thinking on cognition. And I think we've made great strides in understanding that. And I feel like we've had a long way to go, or maybe the literature is out there. I just don't know it, on understanding desire and where our desires come from. Like, mm. why is it that I, I either like scallops or I don't, but I can't control whether I like scallops. <laughs> uh, and that's a shallow, but you know, in this book, I try to say there, and it's a metaphor, obviously, there are different types of desire and different seats of desire. And the ego is one, which is the desire to be better than others or appear better, or, you know, that sort of thing. And then the heart, which is the desire for relation and connection with another, one another. Mm. And then I do have a concept, which is probably not accepted in psychology, but it's useful for me to think about a soul, which is the desire to lead a life of purpose and meaning. And I do think we live in a culture that encourages the ego desire. And frankly, we teach at universities that are about how to satisfy those desires. But the desires of the heart and soul are things we sort of have to figure out on our own. I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's such a good point. You talk about the enunciation moment. It made me think of Howard Gardner's notion of the crystallizing experience. I don't know. Have you come across that literature? No, I know. I've read a bunch of Gardner, but I don't know that one. I know his work on creativity, which I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, but I don't know that. I don't know that concept. Yeah, it's exactly. It's the enunciation moment. It's the same thing that you call the enunciation moment. He he says people have this crystallizing experience, usually when they're young, where they make contact with the domain and they say, well, that's it. That's me. You know, that's what I want to do with my life going forward. And so I was really excited to see you kind of talk about that. And could you tell our listeners a little bit, maybe unpack a little more, maybe how you see that and the importance of it for uh, a committed yeah. life? Yeah, I mean, it's a very lucky thing to have happen. You know, I said earlier, I read a book when I was seven called Paddington the Bear and decided while reading that book, I wanted to become a writer. So it was very fortunate to know pretty much early on just what I wanted to do. Uh, my daughter, when she was five, she walked into an ice hockey rink and she just felt instantly at home. And now she's 25 and she teaches ice hockey out in California, um, part of the Anaheim Ducks organization. And I quote in the book, I think Annie Dillard interviewed a painter and asked her why she became a painter. And she said, well, I just love the smell of paint. And so what happens is we have these aesthetic moments where something just seems beautiful and captivating. And sometimes that happens early in life. I wonder if it can happen later. I couldn't find any examples of this where you just feel suddenly at home. And the big example I use in the book is the scientist E.O. Wilson, whose folks were getting a divorce when he was seven. So they sent him away from his home and he stayed with a family he didn't know mm. in Florida. And he'd never seen a large body of water before. And he was there on the Gulf and he saw a jellyfish and he saw a stingray. And he was losing one world back mm. home, which was his family. But he found another world that just captivated him. And he, he estimated that children see animals at twice the size of adults, which seems very true to me. And he said at that moment, a, one, a naturalist was born. I became a naturalist. I just was captivated by this world. And mm. now he's in his 80s and he's still a naturalist. I'm so interested in that. Like you look at prodigies, you know, I've studied prodigies and written about that. And I mean, some of them at age two, like discover, you know, like Yo-Yo Ma was a prodigy. And he, yeah. when he, as soon as he saw like, you know, the cello, he's like, oh, that's me. Or like Jacqueline Dupre, like she just heard it on like a BBC Christmas recording or something and on the radio. And she's like, mommy, I want to play that. Isn't that interesting? Like, there's got to be a genetic component to that, right? 
Yeah, well, that's why I say, like, our desires, where do they come from? Yeah. Um, like, why did this, why did it happen that way? And I do think they're often, I do think sometimes they're moments of loss. They're, you've lost something and you find something new. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who's, who made an astute comment that she said, we were all missing something as children and as adults were willing to give up a lot in order to get it. And somehow I, I think it's a, moments of loss and moments of finding are often conjoined. <laughs> I think that's, that was a quite quite a profound statement. <laughs> so yeah, just in our final minutes here, what can we do about this political landscape? It just seems so relevant to the book. Like your book, you don't talk about politics much, but doesn't it seem like the answer to so many of our problems is this form of transcendence, like this reframing of like what we're on this earth for? Yeah, I mean, I I wrote it with political intent. <laughs> and I do think that the diseases in our politics, we had this notion that, frankly, was spread a bit by the founders. And, and T.S. Eliot put it, we imagined that we could create a society so well structured that people in it didn't have to be good. And capitalism is a bit based on that, that if we're all selfish together, everything will work out. And frankly, our theory of factions in our democracy, if we all pursue our self-interest, then things will work out because we've balanced the machine. And I sort of think that's wrong, as frankly as to a lot of the founders, that if you don't have a bed of trusting relationships at the foundation of society, the market and the state will go haywire. Mm. And and so I, I think there's plenty of evidence from social, social capital indicators that we don't have a bedrock of trusting relationships within communities and sometimes even within families. So then people react in harmful ways out of that sense of alienation and distrust. I saw, so yeah. I don't think you can solve our political problems from the top down. I, I do think you have to solve them from the relationship up. Yeah, it's a really good point. I saw a study that came out recently showing that if you have this you know, control condition where you have experts and you have people listening and say, rate your trust of what they're saying, and then another condition where you tell them if they're a Republican or a Democrat, and then ask them to do their rating, if they were a political party that was opposite of yours, like, you just didn't trust them, like anything that they had to say. And right, even on like non-political matters. Correct. No, correct. Too. On their area of expertise, that they've spent their whole life studying. <laughs> Isn't that deeply problematic? <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I was more conservative earlier in my life and I was around conservative students and I would always tell them, you may think your professors have political views that are wrong, but trust them on what they know. <laughs> and, but <laughs> yeah. the tendency was to think, oh, they're all full of it. Not on everything, but they actually really know some things. <laughs> but it's hard to get that message across. It's it's weird how distrust bleeds <laughs> bleeds yeah. outward. Yeah, it really does. I think that you really hit the nail on the head there with that as a real core core problem in our society. I mean, how can we? I mean, you do talk about how we can, you know, some things we can do. What do you call it? the relationist? No, what's the word used? Yeah. Relationalism. At the end, I, Relationalism. Yeah, the relationalist yeah. manifesto. Yeah, that's my attempt to summarize what is the ideological spine of the book, which is an, sort of a, an attack on what I call hyper-individualism, which is sort of individualism taken to the extreme. Right. And, you know, and the, I have this sort of this manifesto version, but the part that I'm prouder of is where I have the human version. I've spent the last few years hanging around these people I call weavers, and they're just people who are sensational in relationship. And some of them, you know, have done... You know, for example, one woman named Lisa Fitzpatrick was living in New Orleans and she was driving, she was a healthcare executive. She was sitting in the passenger seat of a car and she saw two 10 and 11 year old boys who looked terrified holding something. And what they were holding was a gun and they raised it and they shot her in the face mm. and she recovered. And she, what she remembered about the moment was not the gun, but the look of sheer terror on their faces. Mm. And this was a gang initiation ritual. They had to shoot somebody to be members of a gang. Yeah. even though they're only 10, 11. And so she said, well, I'm I'm not really the victim. I'm just collateral damage. Those boys are the victims of something here. And what can I do about it? And so she got out of the healthcare industry and got into gang, talking with gang members. And she just builds relationships with young gang members to try to woo them to a better life. And I've been around so many of these people with just skills and relationships. They're just deeply relational. And they have an ethos, which I really have come to admire, which is, they have moral motivation. They believe in deep mutuality. We're all equal. Uh, they're not better than anybody else. Radical hospitality. They live in a way which is uh, very inspiring and 
most of us are not going to be as heroic as they are, but if we were a little more like them, things would go better. I think so. Yeah. It's very clear to me now, and in the parlance of psychology, you know, I talked about unmitigated communion. Your book is really uh, an argument against unmitigated agency. You can have unmitigated agency where you have more self expense of caring about others, and you can also have and you can also have a mitigate communion, too much caring about others, yeah. not self. So maybe our kind of end on this agreement here that like <laughs> unmitigated anything maybe is uh, not good for society. <laughs> do we both yeah, agree with that? <laughs> I do. I, I do agree with that. I do think a lot of truths can be become wrong when you take them to the extreme. There was one thing that I realized that I wanted to talk to you about. So I wanted to just bring up the idea of marriage, because I've had some other guests on my podcast, uh, like Wednesday Martin, talking about this emerging polyamory movement, where you can have like commitments to multiple partners. And then you've also people like Bella DePaulo, who talks about like, you know, being single can have a lot of benefits and things. So I was just wondering how you if you came across those literatures and what you think of like how you reconcile that with the, the benefits of marriage that you talk about. Yeah, I guess. You know, I don't want to prescribe there's one way for everybody. I certainly don't want to say you have to be married to lead a good and fulfilled life. That's obviously not true because we know we all know lots of people are single or it's right for them and they're leaving yeah. much happier lives. I guess my instinct, and this may just be unlettered prejudices, that the historical record warns against it. And then just on the larger sense of marriage, this is actually refers back to a lot of what we've been saying. I I try to apply three different lenses to making a marriage decision. And one is the straight up psychological lens. And as I, I tried to read as much literature as I could on this subject, and I, the shorthand answer I came away with, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that go with kindness and avoid neuroticism. But then I thought there are two other lenses which are slightly different. The second is uh, the moral lens. Do you really admire the person? And because love will come and go, but admiration is much more stable. Yeah. And then the third was what kind of love do you have? for the person. And there I went back to the old Greek trilogy. There's agape, there's philia, which is friendship, and then there's eros, which is passion. Uh, and if you only have eros, you, that's not a marriage partner, that's a fling. And if you only have philia, that's a friendship, but it's not a marriage. And you should try to have all three. So it was about trying to apply different lenses to, to that decision. But again, I don't want to be seen imposing one yeah, one view on on the world, but I, I do think the general literature that I've well, read is that in general a happy marriage. And I would say this is in literature, but certainly in my observation of life, the people of lifelong happy marriages have won the lottery. They've they've won the golden <laughs> ticket. Yeah, in a lot of ways, for sure. There's some interesting nuances though about attachment styles. Is that you know you actually find there are some pairings. So secure attached people tend to be attracted to securely attached people, like no brainer. But there's some interesting nuances in that avoidant males and anxious females, I know it may be a stereotype, but actually the research shows they make a good pairing. <laughs> like, huh. yeah, so there's, I, yeah. did you see that? Have you seen that meta-analysis? Is it because they basically solve each other's needs? Yeah, that's exactly what the yeah. psychologists say in the discussion right. section. Yeah. You know, like, maybe we should just be open to, you know, people have, you know, even with polyamory, people are into all sorts of things these days, you know. I guess that, you know, it can get a little political, because I guess if you are more on the conservative side politically, you might be judgmental against some of these other alternative arrangements. But I personally, like, you know, even not saying what my uh, political affiliation is, because I don't think it's relevant, I just like to be non-judgmental about about things that work for people, if it works for them. Even like yeah. saying like we should avoid neurotic people, I mean, that seems perhaps even maybe discriminatory against neurotic people. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so. I said that to a friend of mine. He yeah. said, well, what do I do? I'm the neurotic one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what do you do? You know, like 40% like of our listeners of this podcast maybe <laughs> are, you know, I don't want to say people should avoid them, you know, as, as a dating partner. I guess you are right about if you average over all individual differences, and that's a big thing to do, though. But if you do, you know, securely attached individuals do tend to report much less discord in their relationships. They're much happier. They have higher levels of life. That is true, for sure. But that does, you know, that averaging over everyone thing also can be problematic in not recognizing that there are individual differences that can work for people. So. Yeah, I would say one of the main conclusions I've drawn from my life as a reporter is that we over lump. <laughs> yeah. And I've been very guilty of that, in, especially early in my career and probably still. But like you go to a rally, say a Trump rally, 
and you think, oh, I have a certain stereotype of who a Trump voter is. And then you start interviewing people at the rally, and it turns out to be a lesbian, biker, vegan yeah. woman who works in finance. So people are crossing all your categories, and that's sort of the norm. You meet, you meet people who just cross all your stereotypes. Yeah. Having said that, I think if one of my kids decided to enter a polyamorous relationship, I would say, well, be care- I would put up, I wouldn't say that's a terrible thing to do. I would say, be careful. <laughs> there, mm. There's a lot of psychological trickiness to that. Yeah, there's enough psychological trickiness with one partner, but it doesn't right. mean it can't work for people, right. for sure. Yeah, there have obviously been a lot of polygamous societies on Earth in history. Do you mean polyamorous? There's a difference between polyamory oh, and maybe. polygamy. Yeah. So right. polygamy, I, I, you know, is having specifically male having multiple female partners, but polyamory right. is just anyone having committed multiple right. partners. Yeah. Right. Yeah, a lot of there's, I mean, the polyamory movement is growing, you know, and That's for sure. they're making the case, you know, like I said, I had Wednesday Martin on my podcast making the case that there could be a lot of great benefits from that arrangement. There's all sorts of alternative arrangements popping up these days, David. Yeah, I've, um, yeah, I'm working on a piece long term called Was the Nuclear Family Mistake? <laughs> oh, interesting. We've asked too much of it. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Like, I love how you you really do go back and, you know, you have these fluid boundaries of whether or not you are absolutely right about something or not. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, David. Okay, I've learned a ton. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. And also, I want to thank you for your humility, you know, in this, during oh, the course sure. of this conversation, you did live live by your principles there. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm respectful of the literature that I don't know about. We'll want to learn. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.